You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. This evening's reading comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But then there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray now that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might believe and trust that your word written to us, your word given to us in the Lord Jesus might be bread to our souls. We pray that you would feed us now. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, I think I've met everyone here. There's, there's fewer of you, but if not, I'd love to meet you after. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and I, as many of you know, I've been uh, reading and thinking and now beginning to write a little bit, a lot about uh, religion in the 1600s in England, uh, and namely thinking about labels, labels that uh, people call themselves or what other people call other people. Uh, people label each other all the time, like often sneeringly, like giving them a name, like making fun of them. This happened in England a whole lot in the 15 and 16 and 1700s. So like some people would look at these people who are trying to be so, so super pure and be so holy. And so they like made fun of them and said, we'll call them Puritans. Uh, or these people were like so methodical in their services or their prayers. Maybe we should call them Methodists. Or can you believe it? Like these whack job people have stopped baptizing their infants. They've even begun baptizing themselves as adults. Weirdos. We should call them Baptists. And those labels begin to stick. And then when they begin to stick, these people actually begin to take on that label and take some pride in being a Methodist or a Puritan or a Baptist. The problem with labels becomes when a label becomes so widely known, so widely used, then folks who might think that that first descriptive label of Puritan or something might uh, 
apply to them, belong to them, and when it actually maybe shouldn't. That's exactly what's happening today with the label of like evangelical. Like what is an evangelical these days? I'm kind of trying to do that with Baptists. Well, same kind of thing that uh, contemporary sociologists are like, what kind of evangelical are we talking about? There's so many different kinds. So maybe it's not all that helpful just to give one big umbrella category. So labels can be confusing, but labels are actually kind of important for what people identify as, for what other people identify other people as, for the kinds of people that we might associate ourselves with who have similar ways of thinking or living. And all that to say that Acts 11 introduces a brand new label for people, an important label, a label that we still use today. We're not exactly sure if it was a a mocking label given by opponents like Puritans or Methodists, like making fun of people. But it likely was that, that their opponents started calling these people Christians, like sneeringly, mockingly, little Christ ones, little Christs. It's probably unlikely that Jews gave these people this label because they probably would not have wanted their word for like the hopes of the Messiah, the hopes of their coming Christ to be taken from them and then given to this group of people who are claiming that a crucified and disgraced guy from outside of the theological and political establishment was actually the son of David. It's likely that Gentile folks in the important and cosmopolitan city of Antioch, whether these were Romans or Greeks or Arabs, they were probably making fun of them, making fun of the person that they were preaching and following, the way of life that he had created for them. These people seemed like fanatics, weirdos, religious zealots. And so we need to figure out what to call these kinds of people, the people of Antioch probably thought. So they decided to call them Christ ones, Jesus people. And like many other labels, it stuck. It mostly stuck because these people said, hey, you're trying to make fun of us, but you know what? I kind of like that. That is, that is me. I'm a Christ one. I belong to Jesus. They had been calling themselves people of the way. Uh, we found earlier in the book of Acts, but that was kind of clunky, lacked a little PR zip. Uh, so Christian, yes, I am a Christian. Their lives and their reality had been turned upside down. They had new hopes. They had new challenges. They had new solutions. They had new motives for living. And Acts 11 is a pretty clear framework for their new way of living, for their new identity, that the triune God was transforming his church from the inside and out. And he was transforming it in all sorts of kinds of directions. And he was transforming it higher. He was transforming it uh, deeper and transforming it further, or as we like to say around here all the time, upward, inward, and outward. So tonight, we're going to think through these three sections, these three frameworks for the whole chapter of Acts 11, that of higher up, deeper in, and further out. All right, first of all, uh, I didn't have Tori read the first, what, 18 verses of Acts 11. We're not yet to Antioch. We're not yet to this new label, but we need to go back a little bit to the things that she skipped. But it's actually, if you were reading Acts 11 this week, you might think, yeah, we got this. We've already seen everything that happens in Acts 11, 1 through 18, again in uh, Acts 10. It seems that uh, 
Luke here is just repeating himself. But this is an important section of Scripture for us. We are seeing and watching a people of the way come to a new understanding of God's new movement of salvation. After last week where we saw Peter witness God making, both making animals, unclean animals clean, he's also making unclean people clean. Filling Gentile people with his spirit, making them God's dwelling place, his temple, along with the Jews, even though they aren't becoming Jews. So now in chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem to tell everyone, the church in Jerusalem, what had happened up in Caesarea with a bunch of Romans. And so we read this in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The circumcision party, these Jews who at least right now at this moment are holding the line on Jewishness, that if, that is, if like Peter wants to hang out with these Gentiles, that's fine. He can do that, but in order for him to do that, these Gentiles will need to become Jews first. They're perhaps thinking, we are a distinct people, set apart by God for his purposes. We must not begin to dilute our heavenly identity with God, with the things of the world. So Peter, like, what have you done? What are you doing? You are an apostle of Jesus. Act like it. And so Peter tells them exactly what happened. Now, again, why the repetition? It seems like Luke has just completely wasted a bunch of space here uh, on his very limited scroll on just repeating the same things that happened in chapter 10. But this is important because, as I've quoted Mark Dever before, our God does not waste words. And again, because scroll scroll space was limited, Luke doesn't have any space in his scroll to waste words. These are important words. Whether Luke is thinking of Jews who would later read this, they almost need to know like the the police report level of reporting details here. Because seriously, like in Acts 10, like how many times do we have to hear about Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea over and over and over again? Yes, we get it. But later Jews must be confident that the dividing wall of hostility has been obliterated by the miraculous work of God, by visions to both Jews and Gentiles. This is exactly what happened. And I need to make you understand this, Luke might be thinking. Or maybe Luke is thinking about later Gentiles who might be tempted to think of themselves as like a a Cinderella-type stepsister to the family of God. The marginalized stepchild who is expected to just be happy with the leftover scraps. It's good enough to just be in the house, you Gentiles. Certainly not to presume to be co-heirs, to be inheritors of the promises of God. That would be too much. But that is exactly what has happened. The Gentiles have been grafted in. They have been brought into the family of God. So, again, Luke wants to just hammer, 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 word by word, event by event, detail by detail, into his readers' minds, their thoughts, and into their hearts. And so, verse 4, Peter began and explained it to them in order. He tells them exactly what happened. 
And yet, there are a couple of first-person details that got left out in chapter 10. Like when Peter is telling about how the Spirit fell on the Gentiles, just like it had on them in Acts 2 at Pentecost, he, he tells these folks here in Jerusalem in verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit. Oh yes, I, I remember. I remember, this is exactly the way that Jesus said it would happen. All of these things, the gospel going out to people outside of the people of Israel. And so he concludes, Peter does in verse 17, to this present-day audience in Jerusalem. What happened? He says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He's kind of like the Pharisee Gamaliel in chapter 5, when he said, If this thing is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Who are we humans to stop what God is doing? And so those hearing these things, Luke tells us in verse 18, they fall silent. They're completely silent at this news that the Spirit has come, has come and indwelt these Gentile people. And these Gentiles have, in fact, been baptized. They are silent. You could hear a pin drop. They're astounded and amazed what God has done in this new movement to the Gentiles. But then their silence immediately erupts. It gives way to praise. We read, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Gentiles, non-Jews, Romans, they had placed themselves under Israel's king. They had come to Israel's Passover lamb, and by turning from their previous identities, their previous lives, they had received a new identity, not by becoming Jews, but by becoming people of the way, people of Jesus, in the exact same way that these Jewish people had, by coming in repentance and in faith. So these people, they are amazed at the wonderful works of God, his salvation of the nations. How marvelous, how wonderful, and I'm assuming their song would ever be at this new glory that God has poured out onto the, onto the world, like sacrificial incense of praise that was ascending to heaven where God the Father was receiving and delighting in their joy. Higher up, the glory of God and the praises of his people. So God's movement is causing higher praise. But secondly then, in what seems like a pretty clean break in the narrative, a hard right turn, Luke cuts the scene and flies from Jerusalem up to Syria. But there is some continuity here. It's not just a hard break. For where we saw higher up praise, now we are going to see the people in the church grow deeper in. So deeper in, reminding us of what happened in Acts 7 and 8. Luke uh, helps us to remember the, the persecution of the people of the way that Saul helped kick off at, and oversee at the stoning of, C, of Stephen. And Luke tells us and reminds us the, of the, the weed eater that had thrown the rocks of God's people all over the known world as far away as Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, and to Cyprus, that large Mediterranean island, and to Antioch. Now, Antioch is, is kind of confusing because there were lots of Antiochs in ancient times. In fact, there are several Antiochs even within the book of Acts. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are going to leave this Antioch, which is in Syria, and then they're going to go to Antioch in Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey. So it gets a little bit tricky to keep track of where and what each town and city 
each one is. But this Antioch is a big old stinking deal. Behind Rome and behind Athens, Antioch was one of the most important cities in the entire Roman Empire. Rome, we might say, was like the center of power. And Athens, we might say, was like the center of intellect and culture. But Antioch was a cosmopolitan city magnet of like all cultures of the world. It sat on the Orontes River, a huge river in Syria, and it was the gateway to the Arab world to the east. And because of its kind of perhaps like Istanbul today, because of its straddling of east and west, it was extraordinarily important. It was important politically, militarily, commercially, culturally. It is this huge blended melting pot of culture. It had also developed a reputation of decadence and of debauchery. Back in Rome, a couple of centuries later, a later Roman senator who was looking at Roman culture shifting and in his mind crumbling, he is said to have said that the Orontes has flowed into the Tiber, the Tiber River in Rome. He's saying that Antioch culture has polluted Roman culture. Antioch was a well-known city throughout the Roman Empire. So maybe if Rome was Washington, D.C., and Athens was New York City, uh, perhaps Antioch is L.A. Uh, It's commercially wealthy, it's culturally diverse and influential, and it even has a reputation that goes with it. So back to the weed eater. Uh, These people of the way have been thrown out all the way, even to Antioch. And as they are going and along the way, we find in verse 19 that they are finding and speaking to Jews, which makes sense since they probably at this point didn't know about what had happened in chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. And as they go to and through these places, then they finally get to the big city. Antioch was probably just like a legend to these folks coming from Jerusalem, like maybe Somebody, one of you who's like grown up in Albuquerque your whole life. Uh, It's not a small city. Jerusalem is not a small city, but then you move to LA and it's like the bright lights and oh my goodness, there's the Hollywood sign that I've known about for my entire life. Perhaps some of these people are like Antioch. I've known and heard stories about this place my entire life and here we are. But here in Antioch, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, These folks who had grown up in Greek-speaking cultures, but likely probably some of the same folks who were present in Jerusalem in Acts 2 at Pentecost when they came to follow Jesus and received his spirit. Some of these folks, they start preaching Jesus, not just to the Jews in Antioch, but also to the Hellenists. These are likely Greek-speaking Jews, like we saw the Greek-speaking widows in Acts 6 who were being neglected. But it also could include non-Jewish Greeks. Either way, what happens? What happens when these folks start preaching Jesus to these non-cultural Jews in Antioch? Well, it's Cornelius' house all over again. Eagerness, hunger, and repentance. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And then this news, like the news from Cornelius' house, makes its way to Jerusalem. Now, many or most of us have Christian friends who live in L.A. Or if you don't have a Christian friend who lives in Los Angeles, you've heard of Christians who live in Los Angeles. 
We also, though, not just have Christian friends who live in Los Angeles. We have, or at least know of, Christians who live in North Africa, and in China, and in England, and in Guatemala. We know the way of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, to be a global thing. But in this day, this is brand new. It's unheard of. Perhaps those in Jerusalem might be thinking, yeah, right. Those debauched people in Los Angeles are saying that they've come to follow Jesus. I'll believe it when I see it. And so that's what they do. They send Barnabas to go check it out. So Barnabas does. He makes his way up to Antioch and finds out, yep, it's exactly as we heard. The people of Los Angeles have come to follow Christ in repentance and belief. In verse 23, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That is not to just respond with like a one-time prayer of conversion, but remain faithful to the Lord now with a new, steadfast, singular, devoted purpose. People of Antioch, he might have been exhorting them, push all your chips in. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the ruler of all things. He is the focus of all creation. He is the fulfillment of all of your hopes, the the now new center of your entire meaning and being as a human. So know him, trust him, become like him. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, singular focus, new meaning, meaning that everything else in your life now doesn't not matter, but it now matters in a new way. It now matters as a revolving thing around the center of gravity in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingdom becoming made known in your life and in this world. Singular, steadfast purpose. And guess what? A great many people were added to the Lord. Even more, we find out, after Barnabas's exhortation. In Los Angeles! It doesn't make any sense. But here's the thing about Barnabas. Luke doesn't tell us exactly why he does what he does, but it sure looks looks like perhaps he knows himself and the way that God has gifted him, or it looks like he realizes he can't do this by himself. Barnabas has exhorted and encouraged these new brothers and sisters. After all, his name means son of encouragement. But then he thinks, These people need deep discipleship. They don't just need an announcement that Jesus is king. Christ has not sent us to make converts, but he has called us to make disciples. They need to be taught a comprehensive understanding of the scriptures and of the new life. And I can't do this by myself. There are too many people, and perhaps he's remembering of when Peter and James and John told Barnabas about when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, not just by themselves, but to work, to delegate, to depend on one another. So he realizes, you know what? Now that I'm all the way up in Antioch, now I'm only a hundred miles from Tarsus, where we sent Saul to go hang out and wait. I bet that dude could help. So in verse 25, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And verse 26, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And what did they do there? For a whole year, they gave their lives 
They met with the church. They taught a great many people. And perhaps the, the people of Antioch were like the Ethiopian who asked Philip, how can I understand unless someone guides me? The Christian life is a life of discipleship, of following someone else who has followed someone else, who has followed someone else, who has followed Jesus. And the kind of loner Christian that doesn't need help from others, who doesn't need help from history, who doesn't need help from the church, the kind of independent Christian life that is so normative amongst American Christianity is completely foreign to the New Testament. That I don't need to read or study to be a Christian. That I don't need help or guidance with what I read or study. That the Bible is meaningful for however or whatever I might get out of it. Whatever I feel like it means. But as the old saying goes, uh, every heretic has a Bible verse. We can read and understand and apply the scriptures wrongly. God the Father has given us the Spirit that we can understand, that He does illumine the Scriptures for us, but we need to be discipled by those who have come before us. We need to be discipled by each other. We need to be discipled by the church. We need growth and accountability, which is one reason why we take church membership so seriously here, among other reasons to be discipled by one another, to hold each other accountable, to just read the scriptures, to read books, to understand with what, what God is doing in our lives and in the world. So there's still time to sign up for that class, which starts next Sunday night on Zoom after the service. But to do so, that we might take seriously our discipleship with steadfast purpose, with singular intent, with growing deeper in with our love and care for one another and our love and knowledge for God. And this is what's happening in, in Antioch. They, they became disciples. And Luke tells us at the end of verse 26 that in Antioch, the first disciples were called Christians. A new label. Very likely to what was happening in Acts 2, the, these new Christians were probably devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They had taken on a new identity and were cultural and religious oddballs, weirdos. But notice that it was the disciples who were called Christians. Those who were following others, who were following others, who were following Christ. In other words, these first Christians weren't Christians because they merely believed something to be true about Jesus. Because even the demons believe the truth about who Jesus is. They weren't Christians because they had Christian friends or Christian family. Not because they even prayed sometimes or listened to the music that other Christians were making. They were Christians by the fact that they had come to Christ for the forgiveness of sin, leaving behind the old self and becoming united to his life, and were growing even more, pressing even further, deepening in their love for him, their obedience to him, not just higher up, but deeper in, this new identity of becoming a little Christ, a Christ one, a Christian. 
not as an adjective describing who they were, but as a noun for who they were, their fundamental identity. They were not Antiochians who were also Christians. No, they were Christians who just happened to live in Antioch. So what is the label that you want to, or are quickest to, want to attach to yourself, consciously or subconsciously? In your social media bios, in the the bumper stickers that you put on your cars? Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that to be a disciple of Christ, you need to make it super clear in your social media bio or on the bumper stickers that you put on your car. But who do you think you are at your deepest or most immediate level of identity? Are you a New Mexican, a Midwesterner, a West Coaster, a Texan? Are you an American? That's who I am. I'm an American. Are you well-educated? Are you an alumnus of your university? That is where you take your pride and your identity. Are you a fan of your favorite sports team? That's who I am. I'm a Laker fan, or a Red Wings fan, or I'm a Cowboy fan. That's who I am. That's what people know me to be. Is it your vocation? Americans are certainly tempted toward that. Hey, what do you do? This is our very, one of our very first small talk questions. In other words, who are you? I'm a dentist. I'm an engineer. I'm a pastor. That says so much to me and to you about who I am as a human being. Who are you? Are you a father or a husband, a mother or a wife? Has the fact that you are not married formed and shaped some part of your identity? Until I am married, I cannot reach my fullest potential. Nonsense. Your identity is that of a Christian who happens to be single rather than being uh, a single person who happens to be a Christian in the same way that your married friends are Christians who happen to be married. Who are you? Are, are you your skin color? If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. You are united to him and therefore a co-heir of his inheritance, a son and daughter of the Most High God. That is who you are. You are an American Christian. You are not a Christian American. The noun and the adjective make all the difference in the world. Now, one reason we know that these folks don't think of themselves as Christian Antiochians, but of Antiochian Christians, is because of now, lastly, how we see them react and respond to those who share their identity in Christ outside of Antioch. So lastly, further out. In verse 27, we see a prophet named Agabus. We'll see him again later in the book. This prophet Agabus comes to Antioch from Jerusalem, and he tells of a coming famine that will plague the entire known world. Agabus is essentially now a a new Joseph from the book of Genesis, uh, telling Pharaoh that a famine is coming, so start preparing. Now, in Genesis, we saw God use the, the pagan nation of Egypt through Joseph's prophecy to care and provide for his people, to care and provide for Jacob's family, the family of Israel. But Pharaoh 
putting Joseph in charge of this food preparation program, it wasn't out of like generous care for the nations. It's not like Pharaoh was like, yes, let's begin to plan and prepare so that we can provide for the whole world. They just planned so well that they had so much excess that they could provide, often at a profit, right? Joseph sells the food to his brothers. But here's the thing about the Antiochian Christians. Agabus comes and delivers this prophetic word, and how do they respond? Not with, oh shoot, let's start preparing personally and for ourselves. Let's gather and save everything that we have to ensure that we have not just the slightest decrease in our expected standard way of life, so that we are able to buy and provide everything that we possibly need for ourselves, and if there is any scraps left over, then we can be kind and generous with it. Now, how do they respond, and what do they do? Back up to verse 28, Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which this took place in the days of Claudius, Luke tells us. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Apparently, either they knew that the famine would probably hit harder there, or perhaps they knew in Antioch they had a ton of money and the folks down in Jerusalem perhaps wouldn't have been as prepared financially as they would have been. Whatever the reason, their love and worship for God was indeed going higher up. Their love and discipleship for God and each other was going deeper in. But now their love and their care for the world, especially those who shared their identity in Christ, was going further out. This kind of generosity and financial relief program for a different part of the world, for a different people group, a different ethnic people group, this was entirely unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, one commentator suggests that this is the very first program like it in the history of humanity here. Undoubtedly, there have been others, but in recorded history, this doesn't happen where people pool their financial resources and then send it to another part of the world to help to provide and care for others. So perhaps recalling what Jesus had said, and they shall know you by your love for one another, these new Jewish Christians, or these new Christians in Antioch, were sending relief to their Jewish brothers to their Jerusalem brothers. That is, the label of Christian was like the higher genus that underneath Antioch and Jerusalem was the lower species. And a person of Antioch or Caesarea or Jerusalem, it doesn't really matter. These species all belong to the higher genus of in Christ, of Christ ones. They belonged to each other, no matter their culture, their language, their skin color, because they all belonged to Christ. These early Christians in Acts 11 were not stingy with their emotions and their worship for God because God wanted all of them. They were not stingy with their time, with their intellect to grow in their worship for God because God wanted all of them, and they were not stingy with their money or their resources as a means of worship and care for others because God wanted all of them. And they were happy to push all of themselves in, their whole life, everything that belonged to them. 
Christ Church, we are just so unbelievably and overwhelmingly thankful and happy for the ways that we have grown upwardly and inwardly and outwardly over the past four plus years. But we want more. We want more love and worship for God, care and sacrifice for one another, love and outward mission and care for those around us. We are really, really excited that your financial generosity has now put us to be in a place where we can grow our staff, which is going to be able to help us in some full-time ways to help grow us even more in these areas, upward in our worship, inward in our discipleship and care, and outward in our love and mission. And hopefully, over the next, in this calendar year or so, uh, we're going to be able to begin some of the things that we've been hoping and dreaming about for a couple of years now to help us in these areas, to help orient and reorient our understanding of who we are and then what that means. That we are in Christ, now what? And so we're excited to, hopefully, in, the next, in, in this year, 2021, be able to begin to do some of these things more both efficiently and deeply. So that maybe even a year from now, February of 2022, that's crazy even to say, a year from now, we might more fully and deeply say along with Paul, who would later write in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. The life I live is a life by faith, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am a Christ one. And those who are Christ ones with me, we flatly, horizontally, belong to each other as we vertically belong to Christ. Growing in love, growing in unity, growing in discipleship and care for the world. So let's keep pressing that we might remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the ways in which you grew this early church. Not only to encourage us but to even model for us your desire for the nations, your plan and program for your church, Lord Jesus, your bride whom you have lived and died, bled and rose to glory for. Father, we pray that when we think of who we are, our primary identity would that would be that of belonging to Jesus, of having lived or having died and now been resurrected to new life with him, seated now in the heavenly places with him, in the place and the focus of our eternal hope. We pray that you would orient and reorient our lives daily to this reality. And we pray that you would do this for your own glory and for our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. 
For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.